So we're continuing our fall sermon series on the big decisions that we all make in life. Some of these are decisions you make once in a lifetime. Some are decisions that we make over and over and over again. And today we're talking about the decision, who should I marry? Now I know some of you are saying, why would you choose to preach on that? So many of us are already married. Well, the number of singles in this country is at a record high. I think a lot of it has to do with widows and widowers who are living longer, but a lot of it has to do with younger people putting off the decision to get married until later in life. Part of it has to do a growing number of divorced people who are also out there thinking, should I get married? If I should, who should I marry? But even if you happen to be married right now, I want to share this with you. Last week in the Daily Mail, which is I think like England's version of TMZ. But in the Daily Mail last week, they published a survey of a thousand married women in England. Thousand married women. And a full 50% said they already had a replacement husband picked out. 50%. That ought to give you something to talk about at lunch today. And I wonder how many of those replacement husbands are named George Clooney. (laughs) I don't know. Anyways, our question for today is, who should I marry? Now, before we get into this, there are a couple of things. First of all, this was not a question that was just commonly asked in the first century. When Jesus and Paul were alive, People didn't ask the question, who should I marry? Because most marriages back then were arranged. They were arranged by the family. Usually the father or the eldest brother in the family was responsible for arranging the marriages for the children or the other siblings. Marriages were created for all sorts of reasons, for economic prosperity, for political alliance, for safety, All sorts of things. Romance and falling in love had very little to do with who you married back then. So the question, who should I marry, really is more contemporary for us than it ever was in the days when the scriptures were being written. That being said, it is my theory that if we understand what the Bible has to say about marriage, we can use that information to inform our decision-making on what sort of person I should be looking for to marry. Does that make sense? So we're going to look at what the Bible says about marriage and then extrapolate from that to, so who should I marry? Now, our scripture today comes from the New Testament from one of the Apostle Paul's letters. And I need to start off by reminding you that the Apostle Paul was not a big fan of marriage. He says quite clearly in 1 Corinthians, if you can avoid it, do. Don't get married. He says he openly prays that people will have the spiritual gift to be strong in singlehood and not submit to marriage. He says, however, if you're burning with lust, it's okay to go ahead and get married. So for Paul, marriage is for sinners, okay? Let's start with that. Marriage is for sinners for the Apostle Paul. But if you must get married, he says, if you must, then here's some advice. And that's where we're reading today. Perhaps, I believe... Uh, the Apostle Paul's most profound and important teaching about marriage comes in Ephesians 5, uh, 
starting with verse 21. Let us listen for God's word to us. The Apostle Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water and through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Friends, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Lord, we give you thanks. You, you always bless us in amazing ways through the reading and hearing of your sacred word. May that word find its home in our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit would rest upon me, guiding my thoughts, removing from my lips any words but your own. And with faithfulness and with integrity, I might proclaim the wonderful good news of your redeeming love. Amen. Okay, so to understand the context, back in the day and throughout most of history, society was based on very patriarchal hierarchies where men dominated women and husbands dominated wives. That's the way things were. And in Paul's day, women had very little going for them. Women were considered inferior in every way. Intellectually inferior, morally inferior, physically inferior. The woman's job in marriage was to assimilate to the man. The man, especially if he was a free man, was dominion over his household and his family. He had very few responsibilities towards his wife. She was just one step above the household help. But the only real difference between the wife and the servants and the slaves was that beating the slaves was frowned upon. It was difficult to be a woman. They had no legal rights. They were not allowed to hold property. If your husband died, you didn't even inherit his estate. That went to the oldest son. It was a tough situation for being a woman. And there were in those days what's called the household codes. Now, most of these weren't legal documents. It was more cultural things, uh, things that we would read in uh, Hints from Heloise or Ann Landers, you know, but they were household codes about how men should run and govern their households. And it was a very dominating, authoritarian-type situation. And to that culture, 
The Apostle Paul writes these words. Now, the interesting thing is what Paul is writing here is very traditional and very standard, except there's a twist. There's something so unexpected that it caught people off guard, and it has caused controversy in the world ever since Paul wrote the words in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Who had ever heard of such thing? Men were obviously superior to their wives. Why would a superior male in any way submit to an inferior wife? This was radical stuff. And he goes on in the following verses to flesh this out and to show what he's talking about. In a nutshell, Paul's vision of what it means to be married is not the husband dominating the wife, but rather it is the husband and wife in mutual submission, in love and respect, that together submit to God, that through their marriage, they bring honor and glory to God, who is the authority and to whom we all submit our lives. Now, I believe that these verses from Paul are some of the most misquoted and misrepresented passages in all of Scripture. They are misquoted and misrepresented by people who have a vested interest in what the world tells us about marriage and what the world tells us about men and women's roles in the world and what the world says about how we should be in authority and the structures of responsibility. But those fly in complete contradiction to what the Bible, what the Apostle Paul says about marriage and how we must be be in mutual submission to each other. I think there's three reasons why this passage is often misunderstood and misrepresented. The first is that in so many translations of the Bible and in many Bible studies that I've picked up and read, they begin with verse 22. The verse that says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Why is it that some Bibles don't include verse 21 with that, as if verse 21 went with what was above? When it's clearly verse 21, the verse about mutual submission refers not only to husbands and wives, but the very next paragraph is about parents and their children and about um, uh, householders and their slaves. And the whole passage goes on to build on the various relationships that Paul is talking about mutual submission. And yet, for some reason, many Bible studies, many sermons have been preached starting with 22 not with appropriately 21, the call for mutual submission. The other thing is there's two words in here which we often misunderstand. The first is the word that is translated head, kafali. Now, when we use in in 21st century English the word head, we think of authority. We think of things like the headmaster, the head of state, the head of the household. And we think of that as someone who is in charge, someone who's given dominion, someone who's given authority. But that's not the way the word head, kafali, is used in Greek. In fact, of the 2,336 instances of the word head being used, less than 3% of the time does it refer to someone in authority. Rather, in the Koine Greek, 
Head is a, ref, uh, a connective type arrangement. Um, and we see this in what Paul is saying here, that the husband is the head of the wife. The husband is connected to the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the church. Not in the sense that the authority lies there, but in the sense that they are one. They are bound together and connected as if uh, illustrating the metaphor that what is a head without a body, what is a body without a head. Interesting that of all the many words that there are in Greek that refer to someone in charge, someone in command, someone in authority, that Paul used this word, which did not have that meaning in that day and age. Remember, for Paul, the great mystery is how the church, the people of God, come together to be the body of Christ. And for Paul, there is no distinction between Christ and Christ's body. The church and Christ are one. And he says, this marriage thing is a holy mystery, and it's a lot like the relationship that Christ has with the church, that they are bound together and cannot be separated. And he says, that's how husband and wife are. They are bound together and cannot be separated. He further illustrates that when he quotes from Genesis 1. And he says, well, everyone knew this verse. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. That's not how it worked in the day. Marriages were not like that. Marriages were an economic source of well-being. Marriages were for protection. Marriages were a social arrangement. But the sense of the, the man and the woman being united spiritually was a foreign idea. The woman would be assimilated into the man, but the man, no. And the, the amazing thing about Paul is the way he pulls out the Scripture and says, this is what marriage is all about. It's about giving up the distinctions. It's about giving up the rights and privileges. It's about giving up your own entitlements and becoming one with the person that you are bound with, physically, emotionally, financially, mentally, but most importantly, spiritually. So that together you mutually submit, you mutually love, and give yourself wholeheartedly to the other. And by doing so together, you submit to Christ and bring glory to God. Kafali. The other word that is so often, often misunderstood is the word submit. Utotasma. Submit. This is a word that in Greek is most commonly found in uh, military or political arrangements. And the word submit there means to um, um, obey a command or to arrange in an alignment, to get in order the way you're supposed to be lined up. And so it was a very common word used in those days. But here's the thing about the Apostle Paul. In this passage, he doesn't use it in the sense of a command. It's not used in the, the vocative commanding sense. It's the middle passive voice that's used here. So in other words, instead of reading this as a command, like a general will command the troops, go, it's more like the corporal saying, come on, let's go. You get the sense? There's less of a commanding authoritarian use of the word submit as there is an appeal for voluntary yielding. You are not required to do this. You're encouraged to do this. 
And that makes all the difference in the world. Because our marriages, our families, our lives are not to be built on hierarchical structures. They're to be bound together in mutual submission under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus had very little interest in hierarchical structures of authority. Who was in charge was never a big concern for Jesus. In fact, you remember that time when the two disciples came to him and said, you know, when you come into your kingdom, can we be in charge? Can we sit on your right hand? And what did Jesus say? He had had none of that. He said, you know, whoever will be first must be last. Whoever would be in charge must be the servant of all. Jesus was constantly turning upside down what the world expected. And when it gets to marriage and how marriage was expected to be a male-dominated for the benefit of the male and his household, he puts in this crazy twist when he says, yeah, wives, submit to your husband, but guess what? Husbands, you submit to your wives. You love your wives. You respect your wives. You treat your wife as if she was yourself because in God's eyes, she is. You are one and the same. It's a much more holy and organic and real experience of what it means to be united in marriage that the Apostle Paul lifts up in this passage. So as you're thinking about marriage, who should I marry? Let me suggest that you do not become unequally yoked, as the Apostle Paul says in another place. Do not become unequally yoked. Look for someone to whom you can willingly submit and give your life to, and someone who will likewise willingly submit and give their life to you. That together, as one, you can submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and bring glory to God. Now, every week I said I was going to give you a, a tool, a, a discipline of discernment. We talked about uh, reading the Bible and praying, and last week we talked about just opening your eyes and looking around. Today I want to talk about the Council of Companions. What it means is when you're uh, in a place where you're trying to make a big decision in your life, it's good to talk these things through with people that you respect, with godly people who have uh, wisdom and, and knowledge about these things. As Presbyterians, we're a big believer in group process. We have more committees and task forces and discussing groups and study groups than anybody. We believe in talking these things through. We believe that through our conversations, individual egos or individual agendas are set aside and the truth of God is more easily revealed to us. And so we believe in talking things through. But it works not just in, in churches and in group process. It works for our own lives when we're trying to discern some big decision in our life. I'll give you an example. Uh, many years ago, uh, my wife, Stacy was invited to be a bridesmaid in her college roommate's wedding up at Second Pres up in Tulsa. And we went up for the weekend. At the reception after the wedding, I noticed that things were a little awkward and there was just this icy coldness in the bridal party. And so afterwards, I asked my wife about it and she said, yeah, the night before the wedding... The bride was sitting around with her best friends and drinking wine. 
one of her bridesmaids said, don't go through with it. And in fact, that became the topic of conversation all through the night, whether she should go through with it. Well, she did. She got married, and it was a rather awkward and brief reception. And the reality is they got divorced three years later. I say this not in any way trying to lift up a told-you-so kind of stuff because that's never helpful. But the reality is sometimes when we're making those big decisions, we need the counsel of companions. We need to talk things through with people who love us and people we trust, people who are godly and full of wisdom. We need to seek the opinions of others because so many times in this world and in our lives, God speaks to us through the voice of our companions. Now, I want to end with one last thing. This was a bit of research that um, uh, I ran across. They, they did a historical study. And um, they found throughout the, throughout the entire history, written history of the world, they have never found a single instance of a husband ever being shot by his wife while doing the dishes. So I just want to put that out there and give you something else to talk about at lunch today. God bless you. Discern wisely. <laughs>